Okay, tonight's message is, is really, a couple of weeks ago, I preached a message on Dances with Wolves. This is kind of like Dances with Wolves Part 2. You know, I've been studying the interactions of Jesus and the traps that have been set before him and how he cle- cle- cleverly navigates through these issues and situations and teaches us a truth about himself. You know, we can see today in today's moral temperature across the board and whether it's politics, whether it's one-on-one, whether it's at work, no matter where it is, you see this culture that kind of penetrates and it's a culture of, of judgment and condemnation. We're living in a society now that is kind of like a cancel culture. If you've done anything bad or anything wrong, this, this thing can be dug up against you and, and it's called canceling. Basically, you lose all credibility. And what we've done is we've taken a moral test and we've put everybody under this moral compass that nobody can keep each other's standard, right? And it's easy to judge our neighbor. It's easy to judge a family member. It's easy to judge a friend, right? But and not focus on us. You know, I'm a good person and, you know, you could say next to Charles Manson, right? But when we judge ourselves with Christ against the law, none of us suffice. Now, I'm going to be talking about an example of this. In John, we're going to be in John chapter 7, verses 37 through John 8, 11. This is where we're going to camp out. But we'll also be discussing some verses in Matthew 12, 18 through 21. I just want to kind of let you know where we're going. So if you go to John, if you have your Bibles with you, if not, you can see it on the screen. You could either put a mark there. You can go to Matthew as well. And we will see how Jesus literally fulfills what he talks about in Matthew. And it's a phenomenal uh, truth about himself. Now, I want to lay some groundwork, as I like to do uh, normally, just c- to kind of let you know what's going on, what the big picture of it, uh, of what we're going to talk about is. So the first point that I want to show you is let's look at the first dance, so to speak, that Jesus interacts uh with, with the Pharisees. In verse 37, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now we know that this verse is, is quoted, but Jesus is quoting this verse during a feast called Sukkot or Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the last feast during the the cycle of the feast. And I want you to kind of get a picture of what this looks like. In the theater of your minds, think of a a parade of worshipers with instruments, uh, a flutist, so to speak, that are coming from the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus put mud on the man's eyes, and he said, go and wash your eyes out with the, the water from the pool. And as these flutes were, be, were being played, there was led by a host of priests, and they were chanting Psalms 118. You can look up Psalm 118 later, and you can see what they were chanting. And the whole pres- procession leads back to the temple through what is called the water gate. Now, a trumpet sounds as the priest enters into the temple area, and he would approach two, approach two silver basins that were waiting. He would pour wine into one of the basins and he would pour water into the other basin as a drink offering for the the wine and as well as a thanksgiving offering of the water. 
from the pool of Siloam. Now, the whole ceremony was a parade. And one of the rabbis in, of ancient days said, anyone who has not seen this water ceremony has never seen rejoicing in his entire life. Now, the ceremony was to thank God for God presenting and, and giving them water. You know, we, we, we live in a culture where we can get water. I mean, we could pour a bottle of water for the dog, right? But <laughs> some, some may do that. I think we do that sometimes. Okay. <laughs> so said all that to say their point, the point of that was their dependence was on the provisions in the Middle East. You, you were not sure if water was going to come through. Water would come in and it would land on the mountains and it would flow into the Sea of Galilee and then it would overflow in these rivers, overflow in the Jordan. And this is where people in that time got their water from. Now remember a couple of weeks I told you about a rabbinic way that they taught, it was called the remez. Remember that? When I tell you about that, it's, it was a teaching tool. In other words, a rabbi could, could tell a, could tell us a verse and that verse would, they would know exactly what they were talking about. In other words, you had a knowledge of, of the word. And let me give you an example. If I say Star Wars, you say, you could say, may the force be with you. Or if I say, may the force be with you, you think Star Wars. If I say September 11th, you could say, terrorist attack. So what they would do is they would, they would, when a, a, a verse was quoted, they already knew the backstory of what was being said. And a lot of times when you see verses and you see the Pharisees get riled up, it's because Jesus would be quoting a verse and they knew the meaning behind the verse, is my point. Thank you. <laughs> I was trying to get that out. In other words, they got triggered. Okay, this is the verse that Jesus would have been referring to when he said that, Isaiah 55, 1 through 3, which is a messianic prophecy. He says, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, and I will give you all the unfailing love I promised David. So in other words, the Pharisees, when they heard, come to me all who are thirsty, they're saying, he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be, once again, God. And what Jesus was doing, he was saying, hey, y'all, this celebratory feast that we're doing, it's about me. I am the, the, the feast. I am the one that you are celebrating. Jesus did not back away from who he was. John tells us his, the reactions to Jesus' statement. The, the crowd was cr confused and divided, and the Pharisees were angered, and they wanted him arrested. Look what it says in John 7.43. Sorry. <laughs> so the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. When the temple guards returned with having a, without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? And this is what the, the, the soldiers said. We have never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. That must have been quite a bit of salt on that wound. Have you been led astray too, the Pharisees mocked? Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? The foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of God's law, and God's curse is on them. Now here we see 
And the Pharisees mocked and thought the crowds were beneath them. They, they thought they were un, unable to interpret the law. They felt like the common people were ignorant. And basically what they're saying is we can't leave it up to them to decide what's right or wrong. For everyone's benefit, it's up to us to determine the standard in the land of Israel. They called them foolish and ignorant. They sat high and looked low, as was their custom. Now, Nicodemus tries to defend Jesus for the, at the end of this first round, which I want to put a plug here. If you have not seen the Chosen TV series, I highly recommend, as Pastor Brandon said a while back as well, go and check it out. When I think of Nicodemus, this guy has ruined it for me. I see him when I read Nicodemus. But it's a very good uh, series. You can go to the Chosen TV, series, TV app, download the app, and you can watch all eight episodes for free. That's just a little plug. All right. So the Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing? He asked, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet comes from Galilee. Then the meeting broke up and everybody went home. That's the first round. Overnight, the Pharisees planned for round two. And I'm going somewhere with this. So just, I know it's a long introduction. Kind of building a big porch on top of a smaller house. The issue at hand was Jesus' claim to be living water, directly linking him to the Messiah. And he did this in public during one of their highest feasts, which they walked around and, like I said, sat high and, and looked low. And the game plan is now to trap Jesus in a political realm and even possibly try to start a riot. So overnight, they go window shopping and find people that are committing adultery, and then he, they grab this lady sometime in the morning, and then we're going to pick up John 8, 1 through 2. This is the second dance, so to speak. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back at, at it again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. Now, here's the situation. Jesus comes to the temple the very next morning after that heated claim from the night before. This is the day after a major feast, which was considered a Sabbath. During the feast, it was called a high Sabbath. And no work was to be done. So the crowd is gathered. The Pharisees wait until their moment to try to get Jesus and trap him. Verse, uh, John chapter 8, verse 3. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Now think about this. The Pharisees were on their petty duty and used this lady as a prop to further their narrative about the man that they hated above all else in the world. Because Jesus was always coming against their self-appointed, self-righteous ways, which was the very thing that thrusted them to put Jesus on the cross. So these guys would hide out in their chambers, try to drum up a case and come out in public and try to take Jesus out. Now, how do the Pharisees catch a woman in the act of adultery? That's the question. Okay. We don't, that's all we need to say there. Where is the man? Both people were liable to be stoned. If they really cared about the law, they would have brought the man as well. If they were such 
upstanding law enforcers, they would not have turned a blind eye to the guilty party that they knew did wrong as well. This is politics at its finest. Amen? Now, these Pharisees, the day before, less than 24 hours, are calling these people ignorant. And yet here they're violating the law in the name of enforcing the law. The fact that they kept the guy out was proof positive that they didn't care about the law. They were just trying to weaponize the law to trap Jesus. They wanted to move this fight into the political ground. And while I'm, while I'm, why I'm telling you this is because during that day there was the temple and it was about 30 acres with the platform and all that was associated. It's huge. And there was a walkway that was attached where that was attached to the military uh, department, the Antonian fortress, in which they, during the feast, Josephus tells us that there was a lot of Roman guards that would patrol the area because they had a lot of foot traffic of people coming from all over the place to celebrate the feast. So Josephus is telling us that there was a heavy Roman presence during the feast. Now, I said that to say the Romans would have been on guard and the Pharisees knew that. Okay? Now, look what it says. Here's the scene that's set for round two on the dance floor. <laughs> or something. John 8, 4 through 5. Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? Now, the Pharisees present their case, and then they co-sign Moses' name, which is trying to back all the credibility that they need. Is They're saying, okay, Mr. Living Water, you want to quote Isaiah? What do you say about this? Now, the attention is on Jesus. The Pharisees are there. The crowd is there. The political Roman guards are all watching. And here's what they're saying. Are you going to agree with the law of Moses? Because you made quite the claim yesterday. So let's look at the trap. Now, Jesus could say, Okay, let's stone her. Now, this would have caused a big ordeal because the Pharisees knew that the Jewish leaders had no authority to have someone executed. We know this because the Pharisees say this in John 18.31. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. And they were saying this to try to get Jesus crucified uh, with Pilate. So they knew... In Jesus ordering an execution, they would have gotten him arrested. That's point one in this situation. Point number two here is if Jesus would have said anything else or discredited what was going on, they would have said he's against the law. If this was the case, he would have been discredited in the eyes of all the people according to Scripture. So think about this. He's set up to lose either way. But we're talking about Jesus. Two things I want you to see in this dilemma. I want you to see that there's a mission of Jesus for you and I as well as, as himself. It's his mission. And here's the life application I'm going to give you. Whatever God has called you to do, you stay on mission. Don't let somebody put a mission on you that is not the mission God has for you. Amen? Number two, he would not get ahead of his father's timeline. Here's the life application. Stay on God's timeline for the results of what he's called you to do. Now, here's where I'm going to show you the life application in the story, and it's as well as something that you could apply to your own life. 
Matthew 12, 18 through 21. This is another messianic prophecy given by Isaiah that is quoted here. Look at my servant whom I've chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out the flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious and his name will be the hope of all the world. So he is for the bruised and weakened reed. He is for the flickering candle. That might be you here tonight. You might feel like the bruised reed. He is for you. He is here to take you over to the other side. You might be in a circumstance that is blowing against your flickering candle. I'm here to tell you tonight, God is for you, and he will take you over to the other side. When the wind of circumstance is coming against you, you can ram, you can stand firm, have a, a, a spine of steel to know that I will not be put out. I will not be destroyed. No matter where it is that you are struggling, whatever area you are struggling in, God is for you. And once again, if you don't quit, God will not quit on you. He will never put out your flame. Let me ask you a question here, life application. How are you with bruised reeds and flickering flames around you? Are you helping to push that reed over? Are you helping to break that reed? Are you coming alongside to blow the flame out? You see, once we gave our life to the Lord, we should be about our big brother's business because we are bought with a price and we are now in the family business of our father. And we need to always remember to stay on mission. Let's look at an example of how Jesus literally fulfills this with breathtaking astonishment. Number one, they are seeking justice, and Jesus proclaims justice. This is Matthew 12, 18. Look at what it says in John 8, 8 and 6. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Here's what I want you to understand. Every one of us needs mercy, not justice. Every day, every day. Three times a day, four times a day. <laughs> we need mercy. Now, I want you to see this because you, to, to give you a bigger frame, I want you to see the cultural context behind this. Jesus is doing this. He's going to write in the dust to speak their language. There was a, it's called the Mishnah. It's oral tradition that is passed down from the first century that Pharisees literally used to judge people in cases with. And here's a little nugget for you. They added laws. Remember, we talked about this over and over again. They constantly add laws and, and try to put that law up there with the Torah, which is the five books of the Bible. Now, according to their law, you could not write on a high Sabbath with, an, with a, a pen or anything upon a parchment or a scroll or anything like that. It would, you would be accused of working. However, there was a fine print, and this is what it says. If he wrote with liquids or with fruit juice on the dust of the road or on writer's powder or with anything like that cannot endure, he is exempt. So Jesus stoops down and writes in the dust. And if the wind would blow it away, it was like it was never there. Here's why Jesus does this. 
He's proven the point. He's saying, hey, guys, I know about your little stupid oral traditions. And I know about the law of God because I'm God and I wrote the law. And I also believe in the law and I am walking this earth fulfilling the law. And I'm keeping the law 100% of the time in mind, thought, word, or deed. That's what I'm adding to it. (laughs) But that is literally what he did. Now, people have debated, what did he write, right? Don't you want to know what he wrote? Well, we don't know, but we know he wrote twice if you read the story carefully. I've read countless opinions, and I'm only going to give you my opinion if that's okay with you. Okay. This is my opinion. I think he wrote death or stone her or something to that, that effect. And here's why I think he wrote that. Look at what it says in John 8, verse 7. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned cast the first stone. So maybe he made the judgment. Then he talks about the method. And this is very smart if you really unpack this. Because remember, whatever he wrote was not clear enough. They said, we want an answer. So he says, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. This is why this is very smart. If he would have just said, all right, let's stone her, and they would have started throwing stones, when the Roman guards would have came, they could not arrest an entire angry mob. So this is what Jesus does. He's putting a name and a face on the person that would throw the stone. He's saying, he was without sin, Cast the first stone. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying. Take responsibility for the act for this reason. Here's what we need to know. The Roman guards would have showed up and they would have said, who threw the stone and who ordered it? That's what would have happened. So here's what Jesus is saying. I'm for the law. I'm willing to go to jail for the law. Who is willing to join me in jail? Another issue is the person that picks up the stone and throws it, the Pharisees would have looked at it and been like, bro, no one is sinless. You're attacking the law of Moses and the entire sacrificial system. So you see how Jesus masterfully, no matter if he wrote in the dust or not, he, he puts somebody's face. He says, hey, throw the first stone. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, not a single person on earth ever does good, and never sins. No Pharisee or no Jew would have ever claimed to be sinless. So Jesus is saying, I'm for law. I came not to abolish the law, right? He says that over and over and over. I'm for law and justice. You'll move. That is brilliant if you think about it. Number two, I will not raise my voice or fight in public. John 8, 8 through 9. Then he stooped down again. And wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the the scene shifts from the accused to the accusers. Everyone takes the lead from the oldest to the youngest, as was their custom. And one by one, they fade off into the background of the narrative back into society, and we don't know what Jesus wrote. Here's where people say maybe he wrote their sin, or we don't know once again. It is all speculation. The Holy Spirit would have told us if he wanted us to know. But I 
thought of something here that was very powerful. When he began to write in the ground, I think he chose not to gloat in their humiliation. Because if he tells them, he is without sin, cast the first stone, and he looks down and begins to write, remember what it says in Proverbs 24, 17. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Do not be happy when they stumble. Here's the life application. I believe Jesus was showing us his character. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. That's not God's way. That's the way of the flesh. The flesh wants to ride on the ground and look up, <laughs> right? Number three, Jesus is for the weakest reed and the flickering flame. John 8:10 <clears throat> says, then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, this is a lady whose reed deserves to be broken, right? Her flame should be put out. Earlier, she is being yanked out of our house, dragged down the dusty streets of Jerusalem, totally humiliated, thrown at the feet of the judge of all the earth, expecting to be killed like a wild animal, invited to a rock concert in her honor. She is the object of wrath and judgment and deserves a brutal ending. And so do we on our best day. But this account, Jesus switches the hostility from her to himself. Remember, he could say that because he was sinless, and he was going to die in her place. So in no way does Jesus condone sin. Jesus was not giving her a formal acquittal. He was giving her a refusal to judge. I'm going to say that again. He was not giving her a formal acquittal. It was a refusal to judge. He tells her, go and sin no more, meaning stop doing what you're doing. Yet she is another component to sit at the feet of the master and get a demonstration of unending, unbridled love towards a human being. He would give her mercy. He was not there to crush her weakened reed or put out her flickering flame. He knew the mission, and he was there to take justice upon himself and bring victory to all that would trust in him. Here's the life application. Are you merciful? Are you on mission? to love, to be merciful, to restoration, to reconciliation. When you have someone who has wronged you and you have the scope and you have them in your sight, do you take the shot or do you lay the gun down? If you could say, yes, I do, you're on God's mission. If you take the shot, you're on the devil's mission. Matthew 12, 20 through 21, finally he will cause justice to be victorious. And his name will be the name, the hope of all the world. He was her hope. He is our hope. He's your family's hope. He's your neighbor's hope. He's the nation's hope. He's the hope of this entire world. And Jesus is coming back to right every wrong that you see before you. Make no mistake. So you don't have to fight it out. You can let the Lord Fight your battle. What's your mission? Is it to seek and destroy or is it to uplift and restore? God's mission 
is, and never forget this, restoration and empowerment to do better. Justification is being made right with God. Sanctification is living out your faith in God. Amen? Now, as we close, I want you to see the Pharisees' mission was law matters, people don't. Religion versus relationship. Remember, they lived a double standard. The guy could get away with it, but the lady could not. They used religious arguments to seem spiritual, and they were lost. Make no mistake about it. The Pharisees were lost individuals, no more than the prostitute that they pointed the finger at. One was law keepers, and other didn't care about the law, but they were both sinners because they did not believe in the Messiah unless they had a heart conversion within their life at the end of their life. They were more interested in arguing Scripture than living Scripture. Now, Jesus is acknowledging this. Let's look at the woman. As for her, we don't know what happened to her. We don't know if she lived differently. She's like us. We've been forgiven for things that we've done right. And Jesus is acknowledging that she's sinned just like us. So the question for you and I, do we go back to the things that we've been forgiven for? You know, when you think about it, when you read the stories and you read what her, her situation was, we, we tend to say, man, I, she must have went back. And, and I mean, she was face to face with Jesus and she must have lived this righteous life after that. Well, there are people that have Jesus in them and they go back to the thing. So this is a story that we can read. And, and every time when I get to that point, I, I, I look at that story and I question even myself, do I go back? to the wrong mindsets? Do I go back to the things that I shouldn't be part of? Let that story be the story that sinks into our mind. You may be here and have never asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life. You might be here and you might have come face to face with your own sin. I want to give you an opportunity right now to turn away from that sin with every head bowed and every eye closed. If you can say, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I have never confessed him as Lord. I just want you to raise your hand and I'm going to pray with you. Praise you, Jesus. I see your hand. Come on, let's pray as a church. Repeat this prayer after me. And I want to tell you, it's not the prayer that saves you. It's if you mean it with your heart. And the Bible says that we will live a repentant lifestyle. Dear Heavenly Father, repeat it after me. Say it like you ate breakfast. <laughs> no, not say that. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. And I confess that I have sinned, that I have broken your laws, and I repent. I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I put my faith in what Christ did at Calvary for me. He died on the cross in my place, and I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, I confess him as Lord and master of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, praise God. Come on. Praise God for making that decision. It's the greatest decision 
you could ever make in all of your life. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I believe that God in heaven had his angels write your name down in the Lamb's book of life. And the evidence that that you have come to know him, you will now see things differently. You will walk differently, not physically necessarily, but you you will not run to the things that you used to run to before. You will run to righteousness. You will have a conviction on the inside of you that you didn't have before. And it's the conviction not to condemn you, but it's to keep you on track, on focus, to follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if you've prayed that prayer, and many of you here have already prayed that prayer, I just want to encourage you to keep following after Christ. Because what God is doing is He is conforming you to the image of His Son. And soon and very soon, as you have been justified by believing, you are sanctified by living it out, you will be glorified on that great and mighty day when the trump sounds and you will leave this this present earth. Praise God. If that don't get you, you don't need breakfast for that. That will be the greatest day in all of your life, and it can happen at any moment. Amen? Now, for the rest of you, we live in a world of broken reeds and flickering flames, and maybe you are here tonight and you feel like a broken reed, or you feel like your flame is going out. I want you to come up, and I'll have some of the altar workers come up, and we want to pray for you to pray that God would strengthen you and empower you. And the question I want to leave with you as we do close is in your community, in your circle, what are you doing to influence them for the kingdom of God? Can I encourage you to shoot for restoration and empowerment and don't break reeds and blow out candles? Amen. Father, I just pray right now in the name of your son, Jesus, over all those that are here. Father, I ask right now in the name of Jesus that you would empower them, that you would strengthen them, that you would grace them with a strength that they may have not had before they came in here and keep them and sustain them in every situation that they are going through. God, give them the grace and the peace to, to, to extend that to others and be the light of Jesus Christ in the life of the people around them. God, we honor you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of worship. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen and amen. Well, good night. If you need prayer, we'll be up here to pray for you. We love you. God bless.